So friends, even as we have corporately expressed our longing that God would speak to us through His all-sufficient Word, I now have the joy and privilege of calling your attention to His Word. So please turn with me in your copy of God's Word to the inscripturated prophecies of 1 Corinthians. 1 Corinthians chapter 14, verses 26 to 40. Let's ask the Lord for His help as we approach His Word. Let's pray together. Father, we confess that it is sweet to our souls to trust in Jesus, to take Him at His word. Father, we ask for grace to trust Him more. As we approach these words, may we hear the voice of the risen Christ who speaks to us from heaven. Give us loving and discerning hearts. Test our thoughts and our attitudes, and may your spirit of truth prevail over our unbelief. Strengthen our faith, O Lord, and fill us with hope that we might labor to build up one another in love. Speak, O Lord, till your church is built and the earth is filled with your glory. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. It is said that you can tell a lot about a man's theology by listening to his prayers. After all, prayer, which is our personal communication and communion with God, reveals what we believe about God, what we know to be true about Him. Prayer at its most fundamental level is faith in action. It is how we confess and express our dependency on the one who is self-existent, uncaused, independent, and all-sufficient. In prayer, we offer up our desires to our Heavenly Father. And if you know your Bibles well, you know that God promises to give us what we ask for when we ask according to His will. And so the content of our prayers can reveal a great deal about our understanding of the one we are praying to. Our prayers are a response to what God has revealed about Himself. Now, in the same way, you can tell a lot about a church's theology by looking at its corporate worship. By looking at its corporate worship. And Paul's great concern for the Corinthian church in this chapter is that corporate worship should be edifying. Any congregation that believes in the message of Christ and Him crucified must make it their aim to build up the body and not tear it down. This is the task of Christ-like love. This is the task that Jesus has given every member of His body. The goal of Christ's redeeming work is to beautify His bride and to present her one day to Himself in all splendor. And to that end, He has given good gifts to His church. He has given the body of Christ a variety of grace gifts so that we might minister to one another in love. These gifts, according to 1 Corinthians 12, verse 7, are nothing but manifestations or workings of the Spirit for the common good. Now, there were certain members in the church at Corinth who were fascinated by the more prominent speaking gifts, the revelatory gifts of prophecy and of tongues. Uh, these men and women were drawn towards these flashy gifts because that's what their culture was drawn towards impressive speaking abilities. 
And as a result of this fascination, they began to abuse those gifts. They began to use those gifts for their own glory, just like the public speakers in Corinth would have. And one way this abuse presented itself was that those who spoke in tongues didn't really care if they were interpreted or not. Instead of praying for the gift of interpretation or leaning on another gifted member to translate those tongues, they were behaving like self-centered children. Instead of being excited about translating those tongues so that they could reveal Christ-exalting truths to the congregation, these members were caught up with the very experience of tongue-speaking itself. And so this is why Paul writes chapter 14. All of chapter 14 is about correcting the abuse of spiritual gifts at Corinth. And in doing so, Paul wants to once again reiterate that the true identity marker of a believer is not his or her gift, but Christ-like love. This is the true mark of spiritual maturity. Those who have the Spirit of Christ will seek to subject themselves to His Lordship and use their gifts for the spiritual benefit of their brothers and sisters. If these members were driven by Christ-like love, if they were motivated by love, then they would not desire the gift that was most showy or spectacular, but the one that was most edifying, like prophecy. And this is why Paul tells the Corinthians that speaking in uninterpreted tongues was of no benefit to the congregation, because no one could understand what was being said, including the speaker himself. See, untranslated tongues at Corinth were causing the confusion and division of Babel instead of unifying the congregation. If they were translated, then they would have been understood just like prophecy and would have built up the congregation. So Paul wants these believers to know that the pursuit of love leads to the exercise of those gifts that result in corporate edification or body building. And for this reason, Paul encourages the members at Corinth to desire the gift of prophecy. You see that in 1 Corinthians 14 verse 1, pursue love and desire especially to prophesy. Prophecy is better because when the Word of God is authoritatively and infallibly revealed to the congregation in a language that is known and understood, it builds up the church. Prophecy is for upbuilding and encouragement and consolation. Edification or building up comes only with intelligibility. And this is why Paul teaches us that you cannot be edified by what you do not understand. Building up the body of Christ requires intelligible speech. Building up the body of Christ requires us to address the mind with the truth of God's Word. Brothers, to hear God's Word, to trust in it, and to hold fast to it, is to lean on His everlasting arms. It's to lean on His power, to be safe and secure from all the trappings and the counsels of this world. And friends, this is why even though the biblical gifts of prophecy and tongues have ceased, in our corporate worship services, we want inscripturated prophecies. We want the Scriptures to be front and center of all that we do because we want to know nothing among ourselves except Christ and Him crucified. This alone will build up the church. We want to obey what the Spirit of Christ teaches us about the redemptive purposes of His gifts so that 
we can lovingly build up the congregation. Now, if this is what Paul wanted the Corinthians to know about the gift of tongues and, and prophecy, if this is what he wanted them to believe, if Paul's intent was to correct the abuse of these gifts, if his intent was to teach the Corinthians a faithful theology of spiritual gifts, then what would faithful practice look like? What would that look like? How was this understanding that Paul was imparting supposed to affect their practice, their corporate worship? And this is what Paul addresses in these verses, in verses 26 to 40. God-glorifying corporate worship is worship that is consistent with God's character and His redemptive purposes for His church. I'll say that again. God-glorifying corporate worship is worship that is consistent with God's character and His redemptive purposes for His church. So when a church understands what Christ-like love is, when it is motivated by love to exercise spiritual gifts, then it will not only pursue edification, but also order in worship. Beloved, the spirit of love is the spirit of order and peace and self-control. There are times when those who exercise their gifts must speak. So edification for the sake of love sometimes involves speaking. But there are other times when members must exercise self-control and remain silent. So edification for the sake of love sometimes requires silence. Notice how this plays out in the passage. So look at the, look at the chapter, chapter 14, verses 26 to 40. Watch how this plays out. Verse 27, speak. Verse 28, keep silent. Verse 29, speak. Verse 30, be silent. Verse 34, don't speak, but be silent. And so here's what we can learn from Paul's correctives to the Corinthians in this chapter. Number one, lesson number one, and I want to state this in the language of 1 Corinthians 13, love is not disorderly. Love is not disorderly. And we'll spend most of our time, the bulk of our time on this first point. Now, what do I mean by that? Here's what I mean. A congregation that believes that spiritual gifts should be exercised in love for the building of the church pursues orderliness in corporate worship. That church pursues orderliness in corporate worship. In other words, edification and orderliness go hand in hand. They are inseparable. Look at verse 26. What then, brothers... When you come together, each one has a hymn, a lesson, a revelation, a tongue, or an interpretation. Let all things be done for building up. So Paul begins this section by asking the Corinthians, what then? In light of all that I've told you about prophecy and tongues, now that you know that uninterpreted tongues are a sign of God's judgment for unbelievers... Now that you know that if outsiders walked into your service and saw and heard you speaking in untranslated tongues, they would think you were insane. Now that you know how God's word of prophecy instructs the believer and saves the unbeliever, now that you know these things, what should you do? What then, brothers? What should you do? The more important question is, how should you do them? 
How do you exercise your gifts to the glory of God in corporate worship? Look at the text. When you come together, each one has a hymn. The word is psalmos or psalm. This is a song. Perhaps someone sang in, in a tongue. Someone else had a lesson, a gospel teaching. Someone else had a revelation, that's a prophecy. Another came with a tongue, that's inspired speech in another language, and yet another with an interpretation. These are all good things, says Paul. But if you understand the purpose of these gifts, then you will act according to this principle. What's the principle? Let all things be done for building up. You see, whether it was the extraordinary revelatory sign gifts like prophecy and tongues during the foundational years of the church, or the more ordinary gifts of the Spirit that continue like the gifts of helping and administration and service and exhortation and teaching and generosity and leading and showing mercy, all these workings of the Spirit are for the building up of the body. They are given to accomplish the bridegroom's redemptive purposes for his bride. Let all things be done for building up. Brothers and sisters, this guiding principle ought to be on our minds when we assemble together as a church for corporate worship. This is God's will for us, and He has revealed that will to us in His written Word. You see, Paul has already told us, and we considered this last week, that what we need for building up the saints is the intelligible proclamation of God's Word. That's what we need, the intelligible proclamation of God's Word. That's why he says to them to desire prophecy in verse 1. Friends, we cannot worship our Savior rightly without His Word, apart from responding to His Word. The very definition of worship requires it. Worship is ascribing worth or value to God. How do we get that definition? Well, we get it from Psalm 29, verse 2. Psalm 29, verse 2 helps us arrive at that definition. Here's what the psalmist says. Ascribe to the Lord the glory due His name. Worship the Lord in the splendor of holiness. Worship is ascribing to our triune God the glory due His name. We must make much of Him. And friends, we can only do that if He opens our eyes to see who He is. And He does that through His saving Word. And when He does that, the only right response is worship. Friends, worship is our response to God's self-revelation to us. So David Peterson defines worship like this. He says, worship is the response to God's self-revelation in the way that He proposes and in the way that He alone makes possible. In other words, God is the one who saved us by His grace in Christ. Without His grace, we would not be able to worship Him, nor would we want to worship Him. Friends, although we were created to worship God, Scripture tells us that we have turned our backs on Him. Instead of ascribing supreme value and worth to the one who gave us life, breath, and everything, we have ascribed value and worth to lesser things, created things, and the Bible calls this betrayal sin. Paul puts it like this in Romans 1.25. He says, we have exchanged the truth about God for a lie and have worshipped and served the creature rather than the Creator. 
You see, we cannot worship God if we do not have a relationship with Him. Sin has alienated us from God's presence. How can we worship God when we don't love God, but love other things? How can we ascribe supreme worth and value to something or someone we don't love? You see, all of humanity suffers from this worship disorder called sin. We love and we value lesser things, including ourselves. Instead of ascribing to God the glory due His name, we ascribe glory to other things. And for this rebellion, mankind stands under God's judgment. But the good news of the gospel is that the God who created us for worship and life and flourishing, even when we refused to worship Him and chose death instead, graciously enables us to worship Him yet again through the reconciling work of His Son. You see, this is why that message of Christ and Him crucified is essential for Christian worship. And it's a message that tells us of an orderly plan of salvation. See, God sent His Son into the world and He took on human nature. He demonstrated a perfect trust in His Word and He died on the cross in the place of sinners taking God's judgment on Himself. Jesus did this for all who would repent of their sins and put their trust in Him. And so anyone who acknowledges their sin, anyone who acknowledges their failure to worship God as they should have, and believes on the Lord Jesus Christ and His resurrection from the dead, will be forgiven and reconciled to God. And not just reconciled to God, but enabled to worship God with a new heart in spirit and truth. You see, the the cross makes Christian worship possible. This is why the practices of Christian worship are governed by the new covenant relationship established by God through the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ, the gift of the Holy Spirit, and the testimony of the Scriptures. Friends, this is one of the reasons why we begin our service with a call to worship instead of beginning with songs. Because the question is, who deserves the first word in worship? Who makes this possible? Whose gathering is this? The fact is, we have been graciously invited by God Himself into His holy presence. He has taken the initiative for that access to be possible through the work of His Son. God is the host of our gathering. He is the subject and the object of our worship. God is the main event. He is the main purpose for the gathering. And therefore, He tells us how we ought to worship Him. And He empowers us by His Spirit to worship Him. But we should also remember that Christian worship is congregational in its shape. Because every Christian, by virtue of his identity in Christ, is a member of his body. We were once not a people, but now we are God's people, members of His household. At one time we were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. Once we had not received mercy. But now we have received mercy. Matt Merker, whom many of you have met, in his book on corporate worship, describes it as the gathering of God's people by His grace, for His glory, for their good, and before a watching world. And friends, as we gather to worship God in obedience to His Word, as we minister in His presence to one another with the gifts 
that He has given us, remember that we are being used as instruments of His grace. We're being used by Him to build up one another. And that means when we gather to give God glory, we are being edified as well. Corporate worship has both a, a vertical and a horizontal component. Exaltation and edification are both commanded by God as we gather for worship. And so the point of corporate worship is not to glory in ourselves, it's not to build self-esteem, but to glory in God and serve others in humility and Christ-like love. Brothers, faithful corporate worship should undermine self-centeredness. It should undermine self-centeredness. We should be intentional about this. As we worship God together, we are being discipled and discipling one another with the Word. Even when we sing, we sing to God and we sing to one another. All things must be done for building up. Now, if this is the principle, then what does the practice look like? If edification is the goal and love is the motive, then orderliness is the form. Look at verse 27. If any speak in a tongue, let there be only two, or at most three, and each in turn, and let someone interpret. See, Paul teaches us here that all theology, including a theology of spiritual gifts, must be applied. He tells the Corinthians that a loving congregation that strives to excel in building up the church must do three things when it comes to speaking in tongues. This is what he told the Corinthians. Number one, limit the number of tongue speakers. Two, at the most three. Two or three. Not everyone needs to speak when the church is gathered. Friends, limitations for the sake of order is a good thing. It is a loving thing. When orderliness serves the task of edification, that's a loving thing. This is what the Holy Spirit says. Number two. Each must speak successively. That is, they must wait their turn. The Corinthians had a big problem with this, didn't they? They were self-centered. They wouldn't wait. They wouldn't wait for the poor at the Lord's Supper. And so it's conceivable that when people stood up to speak, it was chaotic. Everyone wanting to be first. Everyone wanting to display their special abilities. And the Holy Spirit says, wait. Wait your turn. Rule number three, someone must interpret their message. This, of course, follows what Paul says in 1 Corinthians 14, verse 9. If with your tongue you utter speech that is not intelligible, how will anyone know what is said? Now, while we don't interpret tongues here, we do want to explain what we're doing in corporate worship. That's why we have introductions to the songs. That's why the service leader gets up here and tells you, why are we singing this song? Why are we reading this verse? What is this assurance of pardon that we must hear from the Lord after we've confessed our sin? We strive to explain in an orderly way for the sake of edification. But what if there was no translator in the church? Look at verse 28. But if there is no one to interpret, you know, this assumes that they knew each other well. They knew who had what gift. 
let each of them, who's them, those two or three tongue speakers, each of them keep silent in church and speak to himself and to God. Now, you should not read this and imagine someone mumbling in tongues under his breath as though that, there, as though that was a good thing. Silent, oh, okay. And then he starts mumbling in tongues. No. When you think of the gift of tongues, your mind should not immediately think of the modern practice of so-called tongue speaking when people repeat random syllables that have no meaning. No, the biblical gift of tongues was the miraculous ability to communicate God's infallible revelation to the congregation in a language that was unknown and previously unlearned by the speaker. So without an interpreter, he wouldn't be edified by it because he wouldn't understand what he was saying. And if he had the gift of interpretation, he could speak. But if there was no interpreter, Paul's command is to keep silent. The Holy Spirit says, keep silent. So whatever this and speak to himself and to God means, it has to do with keeping silent. You see that in the text? It's not an alternative option. Remember that this is a corrective. Just like verse 2, the one who speaks in the tongue speaks not to men but to God, for no one understands him. In other words, God only knows what he's saying. You know, here Paul is rebuking the tongue speaker. In effect, he is saying like a teacher would say to an unruly student, keep quiet and keep your comments to yourself. Now he gives similar regulations to prophets in the church. Look at verses 29 to 32. Let two or three prophets speak and let the others weigh what is said. Now remember what the gift of prophecy was. A prophet would communicate God's authoritative an infallible revelation to his people in a language that was understood by all. A prophecy was a revelatory gift given, up for the build, given for the building up of the church. And so here's Paul's rules, or rather the Holy Spirit's rules, for the practice of prophecy. Number one, limit the number of prophets. Again, let two or three speak. This is for the sake of order. Rule number two. Let the others, perhaps these were other prophets, or those who had the ability to distinguish between the spirits, weigh what is said. To weigh something is to judge it, to exercise discernment. 1 Corinthians 12 verse 10 tells us that there were some in the congregation who had the ability to distinguish between spirits. This was the spirit-given ability to distinguish between truth and error, between false prophets and true prophets. Now, continuationists argue for a redefinition of New Testament prophecy, for it to mean something less authoritative and fallible than Old Testament prophecy. And they do this on, on two grounds. The first is that New Testament prophecies, they say, were weighed. Look, they were weighed. They were judged. But that's not a good reason for redefining prophecy. Even in the Old Testament, Prophecies were weighed by God's people. In Deuteronomy 18, God tells His people how to know if a prophet is a true prophet or not. If a prophet proclaims a word and it does not come to pass, then he is a false prophet. That's the way you check. In Deuteronomy 13, Moses says, if the prophet gives you a sign or a wonder and that word does come to pass, but later he says, let's go after other gods and serve them, then he is a false prophet. What he's saying doesn't square with what Moses has said about God. See, 
false prophets were put to death under the old covenant. And God says in Deuteronomy that he allowed for such false prophets to rise up among his people in order to test his people, to see whether they truly loved his word or not. If they really loved his word, they would know a true prophet from a false one. So even in the Old Testament, the true test of prophecy was what? Love. Under the new covenant, we are also told to test prophecies. Uh, we see it here in 1 Corinthians 14. We also see it commanded in 1 John 4, verse 1. Beloved, do not believe every spirit, but test the spirits to see whether they are from God. For many false prophets have gone out into the world. Here's the second reason uh, continuationists say that they should, the second reason for redefining prophecy as something fallible. They believe that the New Testament prophet, Agabus, in Acts 21, got it wrong. Uh, the problem with that hypothesis is that it's not true, simply not true. Agabus got it right on both counts, on both counts. So turn with me to Acts 11. The first time we hear about Agabus is in Acts 11. Luke tells us that in Acts 11:27, that in those days, prophets came down from Jerusalem to Antioch. In Antioch, the disciples were first called Christians. Luke tells us in Acts 11.28 that one of them named Agabus stood up and foretold by the Spirit that there would be a great famine over all the world. And then you see these words in brackets. This took place in the days of Claudius. What does that tell you? It came to pass. It came to pass. By Old Testament standards, Agabus is a true prophet. Now, how did they respond to this prophecy? Acts 11.29, so the disciples determined everyone according to his ability to send relief to the brothers living in Judea. Good response. Good response. Now, the second time we hear of the prophet Agabus is in Acts 21, verse 10. So Paul is now at Caesarea, and he's on his way to Jerusalem. And Luke writes, while we were staying for many days, a prophet named Agabus came down from Judea. And coming to us, he took Paul's belt and bound his own feet and hands. So dramatic. You know, prophets do things like this. They're commanded by God to give us visual lessons. So think about Jeremiah tying a loincloth around his waist or breaking a flask or Isaiah running around naked. It's all very symbolic. Agabus bound his hands and feet and he said, thus says the Holy Spirit. Just like the Old Testament prophets would say, thus says the Lord. This is how the Jews at Jerusalem will bind the man who owns this belt and deliver him into the hands of the Gentiles. What's the message? You're going to be captured by the Jews and delivered to the Gentiles. How did the rest respond? Well, they came to the wrong conclusion out of a love for their friend Paul. Verse 12, when we heard this, we and the people there urged him not to go up to Jerusalem. Then Paul answered, what are you doing, weeping and breaking my heart? For I am ready not only to be imprisoned, but even to die in Jerusalem for the name of the Lord Jesus. And since he would not be persuaded, we ceased and said, let the will of the Lord be done. What will? Well, the will that was revealed in the prophecy. Agabus got it right. The disciples came to the wrong conclusion. See, Paul believed the prophecy and he said, just because there's trouble awaiting me doesn't mean I shouldn't go. 
And sure enough, a week later, he was seized by the Jews in the temple, Acts 21.30. And they beat him up and they tried to kill him until the Romans intervened and arrested him and bound him with two chains. Acts 21.38 tells us the Romans bound him because they mistook him to be someone else. They thought he was an Egyptian insurrectionist. Aren't you the man who took 4,000 assassins into the desert? They asked Paul. Now, a continuationist like Wayne Grudem, who holds to the position that New Testament prophecies are fallible, that is mixed with truth and error, argues that Agabus got some details wrong. He says Paul was not bound by the Jews. He was bound by the Romans. And far from delivering Paul over to the Romans, the Jews actually tried to kill him. And he had to be delivered from the Jews by the soldiers. But friends, when you look at the narrative itself, just because there's no mention of how the Jews seized him, doesn't mean that they had not bound him in some way. And they did end up delivering him to the Romans, even if they did so involuntarily. It was because of the civil unrest that they caused that the Romans arrived on the scene. But more important than that, just listen to how Paul himself recollected that incident in his own words. Acts 28 verse 17. He said, I was delivered. That's the exact same word Agabus used. I was delivered as a prisoner from Jerusalem, from the Jews, into the hands of the Romans or Gentiles. That's what Agabus said. See, Agabus' prophecy was not a lesser, fallible type of prophecy. Agabus got it right just as a true prophet would. When the prophet Malachi predicted the coming of John the Baptist in Malachi 4-5, this is what he said. He said, Behold, I will send you Elijah the prophet before the great and awesome day of the Lord comes. Did Malachi get some details wrong when John the son of Zechariah the priest showed up instead? Or should we understand this to be a true prophecy? Since the angel who appeared to Zechariah described John's ministry to be in the power and spirit of Elijah. Jesus himself referred to John as Elijah. And we know what he meant. Malachi got it right, and so did Agabus. As one pastor said, we need not throw prophecy under the Agabus. Now, why is it important to establish the nature of prophecy? Because this is what 1 Corinthians 14, 29 is talking about. Two or three were to speak, and when one person was prophesying, others were to discern its truthfulness. This is what spiritual people do, according to 1 Corinthians 2.15. The spiritual person judges all things. Rule number three. Here's the third regulation. Look at verses 30 to 31. If a revelation is made to another sitting there, let the first be silent. You know, this tells you that in the congregation, when someone prophesied or had something to say, they stood up. The rest were seated. If another prophet received a word from the Lord, a revelation, Paul says, let the first be silent. This does not mean that the second prophet could interrupt or cut off the first mid-speech. No, this means that the first one ought to be mindful of the second. He ought to conclude what he had to say so that the second prophet could speak. It's the same principle. Wait. Wait. Be mindful. This was to promote loving order. Loving order for the sake of what, you say? Well, look at the next verse. Here's the reason. For you can all prophesy one by one 
so that all may learn and all be encouraged. That's the goal, edification. This is the aim of prophecy, to equip the saints so that they may learn the Word of God. This was instruction for the sake of encouragement, so that the saints would be spurred on to love and good works. But what if someone in this self-centered, chaotic crowd said, you know, I can't help it. I can't. When the Spirit is upon me, mm, I've got to speak. I must speak in tongues. I have to prophesy. You can't stop me. I can't even stop myself. What do you say to such a person? Look at verse 32. And the spirits of prophets are subject to prophets. Beloved, the spirit who works in you is the spirit of order and of self-control. What does Paul mean? He means, yes, you can keep quiet. Yes, you can wait your turn. It means you must exercise patience. It means you can work towards the edification of the body in corporate worship by imitating God Himself. Friends, orderliness is a loving thing. It's a loving thing. It's wonderful to serve the body with the gifts of helps and service and showing mercy, to demonstrate love by sending meals for Paul and Christine. But an orderly meal train helps, doesn't it? Just to know who's sending what on which day. It helps love them better. We must preach, we must sing, we must give. An order of service helps us lovingly build up the body. Look at the next verse. For God is not a God of confusion, but of peace. Friends, think about how this God of peace has brought us peace. Think about that. He's done so by reconciling us to His Son. Before the foundation of the world, the Father chose. In the fullness of time, the Son took on flesh and He came and He purchased a people for Himself. Then came the age of the Spirit who works through the preaching of the gospel, saving sinners. We are born again as we hear the word. We repent and then we believe and then we grow. Progressive sanctification follows our conversion. And then there's glorification to look forward to. Beloved, the peace that we have as children of God has been given to us as a gift of grace by a God of holy order. When we reflect on the saving love of God, the way that the saving love of God has brought us peace, we can see that His love had an orderly plan. Having been justified by faith, we now have peace with the God of peace through our Lord Jesus Christ. And friend, if you're not a Christian, our message to you is that you too can have this peace if you repent of your sins and put your trust in Jesus. You see, some of these puffed up Corinthians might have thought that their spontaneity and lack of self-control was actually an indication of real spirituality. But Paul says otherwise. He says God glorifying corporate worship is marked by loving order because that's what God is like. If we are truly worshiping Him, we become like Him. 
God is not a God of confusion. The word that is translated as confusion denotes upheaval and instability and disorder. You know, those things are not indicative of the Spirit's working, but of the workings of the flesh. James tells us in James 3.16, For where jealousy and selfish ambition exist, there will be disorder and every vile practice. Brothers and sisters, order should not be seen as the enemy of a vibrant and joyous faith. No, order enhances and strengthens it. Love ought to facilitate order because love builds up. Everything that we do in corporate worship ought to be intentional. But here's something I want to point out that I also think has something to do with God's character and order. Look at the text carefully. Why do you think Paul says two or three ought to speak in tongues or two or three ought to prophesy? I don't think that's arbitrary. I don't think Paul is merely thinking of limiting the number of people speaking so that they don't take up all the time. I think Paul is thinking of the law. He certainly has the law in mind. You can see that in verse 34. You see, every time Scripture uses two or three, it is in the context of what constitutes sufficient legal representation. Deuteronomy 19.15 Only on the evidence of two witnesses or three witnesses shall a charge be established. Matthew 18.16 If he does not listen, take one or two others along with you that every charge may be established by the evidence of how many? Two or three witnesses. 1 Timothy 5.19 Do not admit a charge against an elder except on the evidence of how many? Two or three witnesses. While we cannot know for sure how things were conducted at Corinth, I think that whether it was a tongue speaker or a prophet, God's word was being revealed and the other two were confirming by their own prophecies what was being said by the other. Of course, whether through interpreted tongues or, or prophecy, the word would have to be tested by comparing it to Old Testament prophecy, by comparing it to the teachings of Jesus, to the teachings of the apostles, to make sure it was consistent with God's character, to check whether it increased their love for Him and it increased their desire to pursue holiness. This was probably the reason for the number. And all of that, again, comes out of a motivation to edify through orderliness. But friends, orderliness must also take into account our God-ordained roles. And that brings us to our second lesson that we can learn from this passage. Love that builds up the church affirms God's design for men and women in corporate worship. So love is not disorderly. Number two, love that builds up the church affirms God's design for men and women in corporate worship. Look at verses 33 to 35. As in all the churches of the saints, so this is not a new teaching that Paul is bringing to the Corinthians, as in all the churches of the saints, the women should keep silent in the churches. Now, we should not read this as an absolute prohibition. Silence in every imaginable situation. We know he cannot mean that because in chapter 11, women were praying in tongues and prophesying, and they were encouraged to do so with their heads covered. You know, this seems to be in reference to a very specific situation, a particular situation. Why should they keep silent? Look at the next phrase. For 
they are not permitted to speak, but should be in submission as the law also says. And I think that gives us a clue as to what was going on in Corinth. You see, Paul says that, that they should not speak, but should be in submission as the law also says. Submission to what? Or who? Now, when you read scripture, it's clear that women are called to submit to their husbands. They're not called to submit to all men, but only to their husbands in everything. Yes, they should be submissive to God and his word. So should men. They ought to submit to their elders. So should men. But Paul seems to be talking about their husbands. We know this is the case because of the next verse. Look at verse 35. If there's anything they desire to learn, so the speaking has to do with learning, questioning. If there's anything they desire to learn, let them ask their husbands at home, for it is shameful for a woman to speak in church. And I think he means to speak in this way, whatever was going on. Friends, this tells us that the women that Paul is talking about are wives. These women were doing something shameful, and it had to do with their speaking. Through their speaking, these women were being disrespectful to their husbands in a public setting and acting shamefully, uh, perhaps speaking authoritatively over them. You know, this verse sounds very similar to 1 Timothy 2, 11 to 12. Let a woman learn quietly with all submissiveness. I do not permit a woman to teach or to exercise authority over a man. Rather, she is to remain quiet. So it looks like that there were some women who were disrupting the services by questioning their husbands in a disrespectful manner when they were prophesying. Even though Paul is not directly quoting an Old Testament verse, he seems to be revisiting what he has already told us in chapter 11. God is glorified in corporate worship when we uphold his design for gender roles in the church. You remember he begins that chapter by speaking of order and authority and headship. As the chapter progresses, he teaches us how the wife brings honor to her husband by recognizing her divine design and role. Friends, God has established a distinct order in men and women's roles, and this order is reflective of the way God created men and women. And so when Paul speaks of the law, he's referring to that creation narrative in Genesis. When we acknowledge God's design and order, when we recognize the differences between our roles, God is glorified. Wives who reflect the character of God don't cause upheaval because they are peaceable. They are zealous for order as they strive to excel in building up the church. And so wives, are you careful and respectful in how you speak to your husbands or speak about your husbands, not just at home but in public, especially when we gather? What does your speech about your husband say about the God you worship? You see, the wisdom of the world tells women to assert themselves. Make sure they have the first word. Make sure you have the final word. The wisdom of the cross says to women, Christian wives, do all things to the glory of God and for the building up of others. You see, Christ-like wives are first pure, then peaceable, gentle, open to reason, full of mercy and good fruits, impartial and sincere. Do you know why? 
because their God is not a God of confusion, but of peace. But as we saw in chapter 4, verse 18, there were some in Corinth who were so arrogant and caught up with their gifts that they pushed back on Paul's teaching. And so Paul reminds them of the most important component of, of order in corporate worship. The most important component. And that brings us to our final point. Lesson number three. Love that builds up is grounded in the Word. And this should be the most obvious of all the lessons that we can learn from this passage. Love that builds up is grounded in the Word. A congregation that pursues orderliness for the sake of building up is grounded in the apostolic word. Look at verse 36. Paul envisions that some members who were boasting in their word gifts like tongues and prophecy might resist his commands, and so he asks them, verse 36, or was it from you that the word of God came? What's he talking about? The word of God that they were speaking through tongues and prophecies. What does he call them? The word of God. Or are you the only ones it has reached? Now clearly, the word did not originate with them. It was the word of the Lord that they were speaking. And remember, they had received those gifts of the Spirit when they believed in the gospel when Paul preached that gospel to them. So Paul's point is that they needed to remember that they do need his instruction. They do need to listen to God's word through Paul, which is why he reminds them in chapter 15, verses 1 to 3, now I would remind you, brothers, of the gospel I preached to you, which you received, in which you stand, and by which you are being saved, if you hold fast to the word I preached to you unless you believed in vain. For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the Scriptures. No matter how flashy or prominent the gift, there can be no building up in love without submitting to the orderly regulations outlined for us by the Spirit of Christ Himself in the apostolic word. In the apostolic word, order is always, always, always according to the scriptures. According to the scriptures. In fact, this too is the mark of a spiritual person. Look at verse 37. If anyone thinks that he is a prophet or spiritual, he should acknowledge that is know and accept that the things I am writing to you are a command of the Lord. And this comes back to the lordship principle, doesn't it? The one who has the Spirit of Christ submits to his word. Paul's expectation is that the prophet or the tongue speaker who confesses that Jesus is Lord must also recognize the order that Christ commands for his household. Beloved, Jesus is not a sloppy, confused, chaotic teenager. He has an orderly household. His spirit dwells in the midst of his people and he blesses his church with love and self-control. You know, in the late 60s, CBS television ran a, a comedy series called Get Smart. It was a parody on the secret agent genre of films that was becoming popular in those days. People wanted a less serious version of James Bond 
And so Mel Brooks and Buck Henry created this bungling spy named Maxwell Smart, who was, as you can guess, not very smart. But the series basically revolved around two organizations, the good guys and the bad guys. The good guys belonged to an organization named Control, and the bad guys ran an organization named, guess what, Chaos. Control and Chaos. Both those organizations looked very different. They had different methods. They had different values. Now, friends, just like those two organizations, churches too can look very different depending on whether they, are, whether they ground their values in Scripture or not. A Spirit-filled church grounded in Scripture is marked by self-control and love and order and intentional discipleship. It will be visible in their corporate worship setting. A church that walks according to the flesh will be marked by chaos and disorder. Paul says anyone who thinks himself to be spiritual or a prophet needs to recognize that the written apostolic word regulates all spiritual things. The things that I'm writing to you are a command from Jesus himself. And so when you take Jesus' side, when you listen to his word, you get self-control and love and order and edification. You reject his written word and you get, guess what? Chaos. Now, how should the church respond to someone who refuses to let the written apostolic word regulate the practice of gifts, regulate worship in the congregation? How should they respond? Look at verse 38. If anyone does not recognize this, he is not recognized. Now, what does this mean? Recognized by whom? Now, there is a sense in which Paul could have meant not to be recognized by the congregation. And he says things like this. Avoid such people, 2 Timothy 3.5. Or he says in Titus 1.11, those who contradict the trustworthy word must be silenced, not allowed to speak and lead people astray. But there's also a sense in which this could be a more serious threat. After all, these people are refusing to submit to the word of Christ. They're saying, we will not put on the mind of Christ when it comes to regulating these gifts in corporate worship. They're refusing to reflect God's character in worship. And therefore, there is a very real sense in which Paul might be saying, if anyone does not recognize this, we should not recognize him. But also, guess what? God's not going to recognize him. On that day, he might say, I never knew you. You see, in 1 Corinthians, the believer is the one who is recognized and known by God, 1 Corinthians 8.3. And so, friends, this is a serious warning. Beloved, God cares about how we worship, and how we worship ought to be governed by His Word. We see this even in the Old Testament, don't we? Uh, we heard about that in our scripture reading. When Nadab and Abihu offered unauthorized fire before the Lord, they did something God had not commanded, and God judged them for it. Friends, God is not interested in our spontaneous creative ideas. No, He has told us in His Word what we must do when we gather. And if our chief aim is to glorify God in Christ, then we must purposefully, intentionally, intelligibly, and deliberately strive to build up the body in an orderly way. And that requires us, according to the written Word, 
to read scripture in corporate worship, to listen to preaching and teaching, to share the Lord's Supper and celebrate baptisms, to encourage and exhort one another, to sing praises to God in song, to publicly confess our sins, to publicly confess our faith together, to pray together, to give together, and to do it all in an orderly way that reflects the glory of God Himself. And this is why, as he corrects those abuses, Paul encourages the Corinthians to desire the gift that most builds up the church. Look at verse 39. So, my brothers, this is the conclusion of it all, earnestly desire to prophesy. This is what will build up the church. Let the Word of God do its equipping, encouraging, consoling, correcting work. What about tongues? Should we ditch tongues, they ask? Paul says, and do not forbid speaking in tongues. In those foundational years, when these gifts were operative, Paul says, regulate them. Don't abuse them. Regulate them by, with Scripture. If love is your governing principle, then this is what practice will look like. Verse 40, but all things should be done decently and in order. Decently. It's an interesting word to describe corporate worship, isn't it? I mean, when was the last time you heard someone describe Sunday morning like that? Yeah, it was corporate worship. It was decent. It was decent. You know, when talking about worship, we're used to hearing adjectives like lively, exuberant, spontaneous, vibrant, oh, it was so uplifting, or the opposite. It was dull, boring, dead. See, the word that is translated as decently can also be translated as becomingly or properly. It's a word that reflects congruency or consistency. So Romans 13, 13 uses the same word. Paul says, let us walk properly or decently as in the daytime and not in drunkenness and sexual immorality. So, so decency is a moral category. When worship is according to or faithful to Scripture, it is proper. It is decent. That's a good word. It's a biblical word. Decently and in order. Beloved, our God is a God of order. There is equality and yet order within His being, within the triune Godhead Himself. Look at His creation. Consider time, consider the seasons, consider the laws of logic and physics, consider the way your, your body functions. When you're sick, you have disorder. Think of the way your heart beats. God's universe is an orderly universe. Consider the creation account, how He creates order out of chaos. Consider your own conversion. How He has brought meaning and order into your formerly wayward life. Think about how He has reordered your desires. You know, some people think that order or having an order of service kills passion. And to that I have only one response. Have you heard our singing? Come and attend our corporate worship service. Beloved, the love of God that He has poured into our hearts moves us 
to orderliness so that, our, so that our passions and our affections may be ignited and fueled in such a way so as to build up and not tear down. So let's trust in God's word. Let's trust in what he has to say about worshiping him. Let's trust in his all-sufficient word because to do so is to lean on his everlasting, all-powerful arms. And friends, that is a safe place to be. Let's pray together. Father, as we take these words to heart, help us to build up your church in love. Teach us to deny ourselves for the good of the other. Cause our hearts and minds to be saturated with Scripture so that your word would go back and forth in the congregation as we encourage and exhort and comfort and counsel one another. May your peace guard our hearts. Fill us with joy, O Lord, as we labor in the gospel, knowing that our labors will not be in vain. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.